Open up to, you know where we're going today? Do you remember? Leviticus chapter 1. So we, our goal today, and it is an ambitious goal, which we will probably not fully succeed in meeting, but our goal is to cover the entire book of Leviticus, at least in outline form, to kind of give mm -hmm. a general sense of, the, of how you fit the book together. The goal in doing this is primarily to further understand the Mosaic Covenant, because that's where we are. We're on, we're on the Mosaic Covenant, uh, as you, I'm sure, are, are very used to seeing this by now. We're, we're, we're still in the Mosaic Covenant, and uh, we plan to cover all of Leviticus, because Leviticus is just central to understanding the priesthood, how God's presence in God's people, amidst His people, works in the Mosaic Covenant, why all the rules and regulations, why purity laws, ceremonial laws, <clears throat> all these different things. So we want to <clears throat> overview Leviticus just today, and then, Lord willing, we're going to take two weeks off from this Sunday school. So next Sunday, we will not meet for this Sunday school, and then uh, Christmas Eve, we will not have uh, any Sunday schools. And then we plan to be back here New Year's Eve, and maybe there'll be three or four of y'all here, and I hope, I, hope, <laughs> I hope it'll be good, but New Year's Eve, we'll be back, and our plan is to, I feel more, in, we both feel more intimidated by the next one, because yeah. the next one, Greg, what are we covering in one Sunday? Deuteronomy. We're going to cover Deuteronomy in a single week, which is just impossible. We're so, not gluttons for punishment. I, I really don't think we are. But Be merciful to us as we try to cover a lot, and it's, these are hard books to summarize. So uh, hopefully Deuteronomy when we get back, because I really think that's going to help us understand the Mosaic Covenant. So Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then we're going to start jumping ahead a lot quicker after that when we get to the Davidic uh, Covenant. Before we pray, I'll just also mention really quick... Um, just a personal comment here. There's a book edited by Don Carson, written by a professor named Michael Morales. Uh, this is him preaching at R.C. Sproul's church uh, behind one of R.C. Sproul's podiums. He wrote a book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. And I picked this book up a few years ago. It came out in 2015. And I, I, I don't want to overhype a book, but it's, a th it's 300 pages. It's, it's certainly challenging at points, but it's a, it, I found it to be one of the most intriguing books I have read in a long time. And uh, it's just a tremendous overview of how Leviticus works, and he also covers really the entire Pentateuch, the, the, the Torah. See, he puts Leviticus in the five books of Moses, and then he talks about how it fits into the storyline. I mean, I was just beside myself at points reading this book. I, just, I wrote wow in the margins. I'm highlighting everything you can find. Uh, I, I just love this book. So a tremendous book that you're not going to probably hear a lot about, but a, a really, really great resource on the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> and before we pray again, I'll, I'll quote the book here. In the book, page 23, he says, quote, the primary theme and theology of Leviticus and of the Pentateuch as a whole is Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. So that's the theme here is, is we were kicked out of God's presence in Eden, and now we are finding a way through sacrifice and blood to get back safely into the presence of the God that loves us and who, who we love. And so that, that's sort of the, the, the drama that we see unfold in Leviticus. Uh, Greg, can you pray for us and then we will jump in. Yes, let's pray. Father, what a, what a privilege you give us to uh, be able to sit with uh, Bibles in our own language, to uh, read what uh, you have said in your word. Uh, Lord, help us never take that for granted. Um, Lord, it is unspeakably uh, gracious on your part that we can do this, that we can look together at what your word says and we can consider it and we can think about it. Um, and read through it, and then go home and read through it again. Uh, so Lord, please just help us in these few minutes as we look at a, a big sweep of the book of Leviticus. Um, Lord, help us to, to be clear. Uh, Mark and I help us to, uh, to make this, help this make sense. Um, and Lord, as we're, we're thinking about how the covenants structure the Bible, help us keep that in mind as well. 
uh, Lord, because we want to be faithful to the structure and the unfolding plan that you've revealed in Scripture. So, Lord, help us uh, understand this book of Leviticus, which is filled with uh, so much that is often unfamiliar to us. Lord, help us uh, be able to make uh, better sense of it and uh, better understand our Savior and His work for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been said sometimes that you can tell a lot about, oftentimes, a lot about a book of the Bible by how it begins and by how it ends. So with Genesis, it begins with everything being very good, Adam and Eve in God's presence uh, with Him walking in the garden and everything is glorious. How does Genesis end? Joseph died and was buried in Egypt. Right, so have we come a long way from where we started in the book of Genesis? It went from paradise in God's presence to we've been kicked out of paradise. We're no longer in the promised land. Now we're in exile in Egypt, and Joseph died and was buried in Egypt. Right? That's, that's the end of Genesis. Then you get to Exodus. We start at that low point, right? enslaved in Egypt. And how does Exodus end? We looked at it last Sunday. The last paragraph of Exodus ends. The people have left Egypt. They're now at Mount Sinai. God's glory is is on top of the mountain. It's now come down into the tabernacle. It fills it with blazing glory. And even Moses is not able to enter the tabernacle. And that's how the drama of Exodus ends. Have we come a long way from where we were? So it went from we were kicked out of God's presence, and now we're standing right outside the door of God's presence again at Mount Sinai. Now, this is a kind of a cartoon that kind of almost for kids here, almost a a child's cartoon here to look at. So you've got God's presence in the Bible shows up in Eden first, and then Mount Sinai next. Uh, Whoever drew these, uh, I will tell you, they're they're in my level of artistic abilities here, whoever whoever drew these graphics here, not very advanced levels. you got Mount Sinai comes next, where God's glory comes back down, but it's not safe to, to draw near. And then God provides tabernacle and atonement to get us back near His presence. Again, only the high priest, only once a year, but we are closer than we were. And then later, it will be a physical permanent temple. And then when Jesus comes, He's the temple, the presence of God. Then the church, where the the, the Spirit indwells us, and then the new creation. And just to say a quick word here, in the Old Testament, I would argue, and James Hamilton wrote his PhD on this and wrote a book on this topic. I I think he's right. This is how the difference between Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, I believe James Hamilton's correct to argue that God's true people were regenerated by the Spirit, but not indwelt. We believe that God's dwelling took place in the building down the street. God God dwelt in the tabernacle. He dwelt in the temple, but He did not dwell in the same way as we have the Holy Spirit dwelling with us after Pentecost. So they were regenerated by the Spirit. He transformed their hearts, but He was not indwelling in each individual believer in the same way that we have experienced after Pentecost. In the New Covenant era, you see here, His dwelling place is not the building, it's the people. I mean, again, if we could just wake up in the morning and realize the privilege that we have where we are in redemptive history, that God is not down the street in a building. He's not in a church building. We we can call uh, churches by the name church, but He dwells amongst His church, which is really us, His people. So He's moved into our own hearts, and one day He will fill the whole new creation. So we are looking at God's presence dwelling with His people. As a reminder here, Genesis 3.8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Look at our book here for today, Leviticus 26, 11. God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you. Same exact Hebrew word. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. How does God walk among them in Leviticus? It's in the tabernacle. 
That, that, that's it. And every time they move, the pillar of fire begins to move. They take up all the tents and they pick it up and they move to the next location and they put it back down again. And God's glory fills again. So God walks now with his people again. But the difference is Adam and Eve could see his face, right? They could, they could look upon him right, right in front of him immediately because there was no sin. But now because of our sin, there's the veil separating us from God's immediate presence. But this is a high point uh, in biblical history. One more thing here. Again, at the end of Exodus, let's just look at the time stamps here. I, I try to connect, connect the colors so you can quickly glance at this. Exodus ends in the first month of the second year on the first day. So th that's confusing there. Uh, look, at the, look at how numbers begins. On the first day of the second month in the second year. You see how much time has passed between the end of Exodus and the beginning of Numbers? One month. Leviticus takes place in a very short amount of time. It, it takes place very briefly. It's mostly instructions. It's not a lot of stories. There's just a few narratives. It's mainly God speaking to Moses and Aaron from the tabernacle, telling them how to safely draw near to His presence while they're stationed at Mount Sinai for over a year. And while they're sitting there in, the, in a very short period of time, the book of Leviticus unfolds before us. And one more thing, if you look at this, Again, Exodus ends, Moses not able to enter the tent of meeting because God's glory filled it. Look at Leviticus 1.1, picks up right where we left off in Exodus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So when Leviticus starts, is Moses still outside, unable to draw near? Yes. Exodus ends, Moses outside. Leviticus ends, God, God is speaking to him from outside, God's speaking from the tent. And then when you get to Numbers, something is changing. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month. Has Moses now been able to safely enter into the tent? Yes. And Leviticus is going to tell you why. So we, we can, we can kind of, people can joke about Leviticus and we know how difficult it is. But for a Israelite at the time this, this revelation was given, this could not be a better revelation imaginable than God giving you the stipulations whereby you can safely come into His holy presence without fear of death, without fear of judgment. I mean, you, you, they, they would be on the edge of their seat as Leviticus was being unfolded for the first time because they want to know how to draw near God without getting the consequences for their, for their sin. Any other introductory thoughts, Greg? Well, it, it, it shows that God, um, God is very clear in what He says. He makes it very plain. Uh, so that we can know without doubt. There's other. If you were to read some other literature from that general time frame, you would you would hear people like writing prayers to the God who I know or may not know. Like so, they're they're hoping that they're doing what they're supposed to, but they don't know if they are. Um, you know, is it enough? You know, do I should I've done more? Should I've done less? God spells it out very very clearly and specifically. Do this particular thing. Don't do that particular thing. God is showing us that. Yes, there, there's a lot that has to take place, but he desires us to approach him. He desires us to know him. And so he, he reveals all this, gives all these regulations and, and rules um, so that his people know what's expected. I mean, God, he, he is so clear in this. I mean, that's even true today. Like, you know, people, we, we want to make it so hard sometimes when it's like God has spoken very clearly what he expects, what he what he commands, what he forbids. And it's like, sometimes I think we make, what does God want? We make that way too hard. And I mean, th this is unique um, mm -hmm. amongst ancient Near Eastern religions, how clear it is for the people to draw near to God. It, it's an amazing thing that God does here that, that we have to kind of get in their mindset and be like, oh, this really is a big deal how he's doing this. Like for us, it's like detail, 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 <laughs> detail. For them, it's like, 
wow, we know what we're supposed to do and right. we know what we're not supposed to do and we can stay safe if we do it. That's exactly right. So again, the, the book starts here. Again, I'll reread the first two verses. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, and we're about to take off with instructions about offerings. And most Bibles probably just have headings for each chapter. If you want to glance at the first uh, seven or so chapters of the book of Leviticus, if you look at the headings as you go, you're going to see the different kinds of offerings that we'll talk about very briefly, burn offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering. Uh, what's next here? guilt offering, and then you've got specific, from, from 6, 8 through the end of 7, you have specific instructions for the priests who would be doing and carrying out much of those offerings for what they should do. So these are kind of the first seven chapters of Leviticus are just going through uh, five or six, uh, really technically six, but mainly five different kinds of offerings. So Gordon Winham, who wrote a great commentary on Leviticus in the late 70s, he says this, sacrifice is the appointed means whereby peaceful coexistence between a holy God and sinful man becomes a possibility. And it's so clear. I mean, I don't have to tell you how clearly the gospel is laid out in these opening chapters. I know it may feel really repetitive to read these chapters. I'm sure you have read them at some point and you're reading through these chapters and you're like, okay, it's very repetitive, a lot of specific details. But if we read it as Christians today, we should see, first of all, the death that every animal dies in those texts, that should be my death. The blood that is, that is put upon the altar, that should be my blood. I should be the one who is destroyed, and yet this is a sacrifice of an innocent substitute in my place, and we, we've got to see Jesus in these chapters. So uh, all the graphics I'm showing you, I stole from various places online. This one in particular I found helpful, and, and there are various versions of this kind of an outline to Leviticus. I'll zoom in just slightly here to, to see it. Uh, this is, I think, a, a good uh, basic outline for the book, and I do think it works uh, like a chiasm or like a pyramid. And so what you'll see is, I'll stand up here for a moment, what you'll see for the overall structure of the book, the first seven chapters, you have ritual sacrifice, which we just looked at. The last chapters, you have ritual feasts, which we'll get to, the feast days and things of that nature, how you deal your time and other kinds of things like that, Sabbath, Jubilee, those kinds of things. Then next on the pyramid going up, you have eight, eight to 10 deals with the, the priests and the priest ordination. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Chapters eight to 10 goes through very specific instructions of how the priesthood works and how that is meant to be carried out. And if you look at the parallel side on the opposite end of the book, chapters 21 through 22 give specific priestly qualifications as well, which you can look at and read. Next up on the pyramid, you get to chapters 11 to 15. And uh, I'll tell you, when, when you're reading through the Bible, these are chapters that for us are especially challenging to read because it talks about clean and unclean animals, clean and unclean food, ceremonial and ritual purity and impurity. It talks about, like it's, you see here, uh, what do you do with leprosy? And remember, leprosy is not what we think of today as the normal issue of like what we think of leprosy today. It was really all kinds of, of skin issues that you would have back then. It usually wasn't as serious as the kind of leprosy we think of today. But still, how you deal with skin issues, mold in your house, uh, all, all kinds of things, bodily fluids. And then on the opposite side of that, you have not ritual purity, but you have moral purity, chapters 18 to 20. And these deal with largely a lot of things about sexual purity, dominate chapters 19 and 20. It goes through all kinds of different things that you should not do. And the bottom line is be faithful to your spouse, right? That's, that's the bottom line of what is being said here. And it goes through other practices like killing their children to Molech, things like that. I mean, just horrific practices. Chapter 19 focuses on being holy as God is holy, being just in what you do when you carry out, when you're paying for things, make sure you use just measures and all these kinds of different things. Love your neighbor as yourself appears in that text. And then the, the pinnacle, and I think there's a great argument to argue for, the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus, the top of the pyramid is the center of the book. And also, and 
I don't want to stretch this too far. It's also really the center of the whole Pentateuch. It's the, it's the center of the whole first five books of the Bible, not just Leviticus, is the Day of Atonement. And this day we'll talk about in a moment, but you don't get more important than this day here with the, with the sacrifice that, that goes on in the priest, again, only going that one time into the most holy place, but that's the high point. That's where we're back in God's presence by grace and through the sacrificial system. And then again, we go back down the pyramid towards the latter part. So you could quibble about details of this outline. I'm not going to say that every bit of this is precisely 100% accurate. I think the general gist of this outline is very helpful. I think the general gist of this is very outline, helpful. Any, anything about the outline, Greg? Um, no, I thought you said that well. Okay, so we'll jump in here. Uh, we, we, we deal with the, uh, the, the different offerings. Let's just look here at chapter 1 again. And Greg, could you read verses 3 through 9? Yeah, all right. Leviticus 1, beginning in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." Thank you. So again, if you look here, I've highlighted the word he throughout this text. And what I find really interesting is the he here is not referring to the priest, although the priest is involved. Do you see who the he is? This is the person who sinned, right? They're bringing the burnt offering. He brings the burnt offering. He shall offer the mail. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall lay his hands on it. He shall make atonement. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's priests then deal with the bull once it's already been killed. But who is actually laying hands on it and killing it? The sinner. That is a remarkably vivid and graphic picture that the Lord commands that. Is he trying to tell us something about the evil nature of our sin? You, you, you put your hands on this animal. You, can I say it? Slit the throat of the animal. The, the animal bleeds out. It's a horrifically bloody thing. Not just the priest, the men who brought the sacrifice in, you would be covered across your arms and across your chest. All your clothes would be stained with the blood of that animal as you walked out of the tabernacle that day. And again, here's an artist's rendering of kind of what you're, what you're looking like. The, the, the person would bring their animal up here to the tent of meeting. They come in the entrance, which faces to the east, just like the Garden of Eden faced to the east with its entrance, because this is a new Eden, a new place where God dwells. You come inside. One text speaks about being north of the altar, so you'd be perhaps here when you kill your animal. You then flay it. You cut the skin off of a lot of these animals. You then take it. The animal's cut to pieces. The, the priests then put it here on the altar and they burn it. A burnt offering would be completely consumed. And it's as though the, 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 the full offering is rising up to heaven to the Lord, me metaphorically speaking. And the Lord smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice. But do you understand how vivid this would be in your mind if you are actually standing here doing these very things? And this happens year after year after year. What does Hebrews say? It's a constant reminder of the sinfulness of the human heart. And just to show here, the, 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 the offerings are mentioned here at the end of, if you look at Luke 7, I mean, not Luke, Leviticus 7, look at the end of the chapter on, this is the end of the section on sacrifices. Look at verse 37, uh, Leviticus 7, 37. This is the law of the burnt offering 
of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, and then it mentions here of the ordination offering, which was for priests, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that He commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So if you look here on the screen, the, the, the blue is for the priest, but the red ones on the screen have to do with sin. The yellow ones on the screen are thanksgiving offerings given to the Lord. But if you, if you see there, is sin going to be a common part of what's going on here? A absolutely it is. Greg, anything about just the graphic nature of why God would command something that seems… I mean, if you're squeamish, you're going to have a hard time standing there participating in or watching this. Why yeah. would God have such a bloody and awful picture in mind uh, and, and command this for the people for so many years. Well, it's like you said, it's to remind us of how bad sin is. And I mean, if we're thinking rightly, if you're an Israelite and you're thinking rightly, then you have to be thinking as you slit the throat, this is what I deserve for my sin. Like, I deserve to die. I deserve for my blood to be spilled. Um, and, and, you know, it, it gets to that picture, you know, other parts of Scripture, you know, the Lord will be kind of, you know, splattered with the blood of His enemies when He comes in judgment. It's like the blood that we see splattered, that should be ours. And this animal is receiving the, the judgment that we deserve so that we can continue to live. And, you know, in, in that time, like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, agriculture. We're a lot more distant from that. I mean, yes, mm -hmm. animals, they had a purpose, but animals were important. Like you get you, you have to give up an animal. That's, that's food for your family. That's, you know, it means a lot of things to lose an animal like that. And so it's one, it costs me something. Mm -hmm. um, it should be me. It costs me something. And I mean, you just think about it like there is a it is a bloody mess. Like we, we don't appreciate that. We are so far removed from that kind of lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Like we are we're, we're, we just are. And it's like we have to work very hard to get in the mindset of the people of the time. What would this be like? What would it the experience? I mean, because you're taking your kids, your kids are going to see know. this, um, you know, the cow that so and so or the bull that, you know, you, was little you played and whatever. Like, OK, we got to go kill that. And like, so the kids, that, that's their understanding of these animals is, wow, we got to, because we mess up, the animals got to die. And you mentioned previously a burnt offering. Some of these offerings, the priests would get to eat portions of it. it was, the mm -hmm. Lord gave that. But with a burnt offering, the thing is completely, completely consumed. Completely consumed, so yeah. In a, in, a, in, a, in a society where these kinds of things were delicacies, I mean, this was like right. a, a big deal to give up an entire animal. For it to be completely burned up before the Lord is a massive, costly thing yeah. for the individual person. And it's, it's a complete honoring of the Lord with all that you've been given there. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. So let's, let's jump here. Gordon Whittem says this, to offer sacrifice, what do you need? You need a priest, right? To offer sacrifice, a priesthood is necessary. Therefore, the ordination of the first priest is described in the second main section, which is chapters 8 to 10. So back to our pyramid that we're climbing up here, uh, chapters 8 to 10, we've got Aaron and the son's ordination. We're not going to spend time on that right now, but you can look at that for why we need priests, because we need to be able to draw near to God with the priest that He has ordained. Look at chapters… Um, well, you know what? We, we will spend a moment here. We will spend a moment here, because let's look at chapter 9. If you have your Bible, let's turn to the end of chapter 9 because this is kind of an amazing moment. Greg, can you read 23 to the end? Mm -hmm. It says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and fell on their faces. Okay, so nine ends with just, just sort of ideal moment. 
The people have done exactly what God required. They have offered sacrifices as the Lord has said. They've brought in the priesthood, obeying instructions exactly as God said. And what, what happens? God's glory appears to all the people. The people fall on their faces shouting to God for praise and fire comes down and consumes the burnt offering. This is a great moment right here. It's like a mountaintop moment. And look at chapter 10. Greg, can you read the first uh, three? I think it's the first three verses here. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Same phraseology here as Mm -hmm. previously when fire came out to consume the offering. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Greg, wow. any reflections? This has got to be one of the more intense texts in the whole uh, Pentateuch here. Well, it, it absolutely is. Um, and again, to, to feel the, the human quality of this before we get even into like the more serious issues, I mean, Aaron just watched two of his sons die. I mean, they, are, they have been consecrated. Like, they are the ones who's going to be working in the, the, the tabernacle. They're going to be doing all this stuff. And then whether, you know, there, there's some evidence, perhaps they were drunk or something like that. We don't know for sure. But here they are. They do something they're not supposed to do, and God consumes them. Like, fire comes out, and they are burnt to a crisp. Um, and that, if, if the other stuff wasn't graphic, you know, this even more so. And so Aaron isn't even really given permission to grieve. God's glory in this case is so much more important than even Aaron and his grief. But what, what, what happened here? God is like, look, this is how you will approach me. We do not have permission to tamper with God's instructions, even a little bit. We don't have permission to get creative and say, well, you know, he didn't say we couldn't do this. Well, let, me, let me try this. And let me tr-. No, God is very specific. You will approach me in the way I say, and if you don't, you die. I mean, even in the midst of the wonder of the fact that they now, that the people now have access to God, like, you know, Eden all the way to Sinai, to, to this, this tabernacle, this tent, um, even with the wonder of that, man still has to tread so carefully. If, if, if we think that we can take it into our hands and, and approach God on our own terms, you know, we see what happened. And Nadab and Abihu were utterly consumed. And why is that? What does God say? Look at verse, uh, end of verse three again. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So the holiness and the glory of God is at stake in what happens to Nadab and Abihu. If God lets them get away with literally playing around in the sanctuary, then what are the people going to do? They're going to say, hey, we don't have to take God seriously. We don't have to treat him as holy. We don't have to fear him. We, you know, we, we can kind of take this lightly when the whole purpose of this is, yes, there is a way open, but it is a very narrow way. And if you deviate from the way God has set, there you're done. There's death. There's not life. There's death and God's judgment. Yeah, if, again, just to re- repeat this, the end of chapter 9, look at that verse 24. Look at the wording. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Hear that? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Look at the very next text here, 10-2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. 
Same exact words, but the, mm-hmm. instead of the burnt offering, it's the individuals. And this again shows that when we, when we mess around, we're the ones that deserve the fate of that animal, right? So yeah. again, because they were acting in a very clearly dishonorable way to the Lord, they got what the offering would have received for yes. them, but instead they, they took the punishment themselves. So again, Michael Morales says this, Leviticus 9 and 10 together, those two texts together, portray both the blessedness of Israel's access to Yahweh as well as the depth of danger that access has simultaneously created for Israel. And he says this, the two outcomes for the people are these. You either have life in God's presence versus being consumed or death by God's presence. Ultimately, he says it's a foretaste of the, of the final judgment. Mm-hmm. So again, I've heard someone say that heaven is the presence of God with a mediator, Jesus. Hell is the presence of God without a mediator. It is the, it's the holiness of God responding to our sin with no mediator in the, in, in the place, whereas heaven is with a mediator. And you get a glimpse even as early as this text to see the two different fates of how we, how we approach God. I want to mention, too, because there's another passage that's similar to this later on um, that's similarly as shocking, and that's uh, Uzzah. Yeah. Uh, when the ark is in the land of the Philistines and it's brought back, and then David, you know, he 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 wants to bring it to Jerusalem, and so they put it on a cart, and you know, Uzzah's behind it, and the the oxen stumble, it, the ark the ark goes to fall off the cart. Uzzah, you know, we're thinking, hey, he's trying to do a good thing here, um, you know, reach out his hand, keep the ark from going into the mud and the dirt. He touches it, and God strikes him down. Why? Because God had said, don't touch the ark. Even in a situation where it seems like, hey, the ark's going to get dirty. God said, don't touch it. We'd rather the ark go into the mud and get dirty that way than be touched and defiled by, by this, uh, a sinful human being. And it's like we have to realize how sinful and corrupt we are um, that, that we cannot trample uh, on the presence of God. We cannot trample with the things of God. Like he is so holy. We, sinful man coming into contact with a holy God without a mediator is death. That's, that's absolutely right. So let's uh, look here at chapters 11 to 15. Again, this is the part that uh, we, we tend to read quickly in our Bible reading plan. This is ritual purity. And I, we won't go through all these in detail. I'll just put the list here on the screen. Again, I'm borrowing a lot of this from various places. Chapters 11 to 15, here are the kind of basic things uh, that can make you unclean. Number one, contact with reproductive fluids. Uh, Number two, skin diseases of various kinds. Three, touching mold. Remember these? It's like if mold is on on the inside of your house, well, then you're supposed to close it off for seven days. And when the priest comes back, if the mold has spread after you took out the the sections of stone that it was on, if it's still spread, then the house is basically not good. You got to shut the whole thing down. Whereas if it hasn't spread, then perhaps you can cleanse the house. It's all that kind of stuff. You're reading it going, what in the world's going on? So that, that's the mold. Number four, touching dead bodies, animal or human. And then number five, this is a little bit more confusing to us today, would be eating unclean animals. Um, the first four at least of, on this list, the first four at least are associated, uh, whether ceremonially or just directly and literally, with loss of life or death. The, 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 the reproductive fluids, skin disease, mold, dead bodies, these are all in some way ceremonially associated with death. And here's the idea. Uh, so I don't know if this will make sense. I'll put an uh, image up here on the screen. So again, th- think here in terms of holiness and ceremonial cleanliness. This is sort of the blueprint of how the Lord lays it out in Scripture. So you have the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's the most holy place. Very holy. That's the place only one person goes once a year, the high priest. Then outside of it, you have the holy place, the courtyard. And this whole area within the camp is meant to be ceremonially clean. And 
there's no avoiding it. If you're a person living in that time, you're going to become unclean in various ways and at various times. That's not necessarily a sin. What's a sin is to be ceremonially unclean and to walk into God's presence. If you take uncleanliness in the ceremonial sense and bring it into contact with holiness, you're going to bring death upon yourself. You cannot do that. And that's kind of like what the sun's, the kind of activity you see in the sun. So the nations are considered out here profane, unclean. You come outside the camp to clean, you come back in, and you got the, it's supposed to be a clean area, and you move towards God's holiness. Uh, to give another kind of, this is low quality, but this comes from Gordon Wenham's uh, commentary. Uh, you, I don't know if you can even read this very well. But you've got uh, Leviticus 10.10 says this. You're to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And again, another way of picturing the same sort of chart is the closer you get to holiness is the closer you get to God's presence, which equals life. And an analogy I've heard is like, think of the sun as like the source of life in our, in our solar system. The sun is an incredibly good thing. And because it is so good, you can't get too close to it, right? It's also dangerous. It is so good, it is dangerous. And so God's holiness is life. It is raw, clear life. It is God's very presence. And the opposite is death, right? To go away from God's presence. Exile is death. Hell is the lake of fire, the second death. It is far away from God's blessing of his presence. So you go from the realm of death, you're unclean. Uh, in the realm of what's common and unclean, you, you become clean ceremonially, then you become sanctified or holy, and then you can move closer to God's presence. If you become profane or unclean, you have to move out and you have to become clean again, and it's this sort of cycle. But you don't ever bring what is unclean ceremonially into the presence of what is holy, or you're in big trouble in the Old Testament way of framing things. So just one more time, you can look kind of at this chart here. Um, if you were unclean, you go outside the camp, you might have to be there for a day or a week, you take a bath, you cleanse, you come back in the camp and you're ritually clean again, and then you can approach God's presence again. But this is all, again, meant to say something about what it is like to approach God. We, we don't do it haphazardly, we don't do it, uh, we don't do it casually, we do it according to God's uh, stipulations. And, and just to throw a verse out here from the New Testament, see if it sheds light on verses like this. Luke, uh, Luke 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities... There came a man full of leprosy. So that's Leviticus 13, long chapter, all about how to deal with leprosy. And when he saw, so this guy is unclean, right? He's ceremonially unclean. And you're not supposed to touch him because what will that do to you? It'll make you unclean, right? And it'll just spread. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's Leviticus 13 language right there. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That's a no-no, right? You don't touch the leper. But Jesus has this incredible ability. He can touch the unclean and make them clean. No one else can do that. He touches him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then look at this. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded in Leviticus 13, right? As a proof for a proof to them. So Jesus now, Jesus is not making fun of Leviticus. He's still living within the old covenant period of time. He says, listen, I just made you clean. You are clean, but you still have to obey Leviticus, which means you've got to show the priest that you're clean. The priest examines the person with leprosy, sees that they're clean. The priest then gives approval to say you are clean, you offer sacrifice, and then you're back in. You, you can now approach the Lord in a way that you couldn't for however long this person had that disease. But you see Jesus here not mocking Leviticus. He is fulfilling all that we see here. He is coming and undoing all the curse, and he's, he's bringing cleanliness. And when you get to Acts 15, we're told that God cleanses Gentiles' hearts. Think profane, unclean Gentiles, Right? God cleanses the hearts of Gentiles like us by faith in Christ. So we are clean in the presence of the Lord. We don't have to worry about all the rituals because Jesus once for all has taken care of those things. Gordon Wenham. 
The occasions for sacrifice from the subject of the third main section, 11 to 16, form the, th the, the, the third main section. Many things can make a man unclean and necessitate the offering of sacrifice as part of the cleansing process. These faults affect not only the individual, but the tabernacle itself, the seat of God's presence among His people. If this is polluted, if the tabernacle is polluted, Israel's holy Redeemer can no longer dwell among them, and their reason for being is destroyed." God dwelling amongst His people. This section, therefore, concludes fittingly with a description of the great day of atonement ceremonies when the tabernacle is purged of all of its defilements. So now we are entering the top of the pyramid and um, where we enter the day of atonement. Greg, a word about why this is such an important chapter, theologically, just in general. This is such an important section of Leviticus. Um, in terms of just the Old Testament or the whole Bible? Maybe both. Maybe is, that, both. is that okay? Yeah, yeah no, that's <laughs> fine. Um, the, the Day of Atonement forms the backdrop for the heart of the work of Christ for us. Like, we cannot understand Jesus and all the language about Him as a priest, offering Himself, like especially in Hebrews, going into the presence by means of His own blood, mm -hmm. not by the blood of this, you know, into the presence of God, in heaven, into the true tent, which God made, not man. Like, we cannot make sense of the Lamb of God and all that. We do not understand the Day of Atonement, um, because this is where the priest goes into the presence of God on behalf of the people, and this is what keeps the nation alive. I mean, they've got all these other mm -hmm. sacrifices, but without the Day of Atonement, there's no hope for, for Israel. Um, and, and keep in mind, like the priest, when he goes in, he's got the, the, the plate with, with the gems or the, the stones representing all the 12 tribes of Israel. So as he goes into the presence of the Lord to, you know, to, to sprinkle the blood and all of this, he is literally taking the whole nation of Israel with him. If he is, you know, and, and so this is why that matters, um, is what he does in there, he does for every single one of God's people, every single one of God's people. And so we, we think about that high priest as the true representative of God's people going into the presence of God, dealing with their sin. What does Jesus do? He doesn't go into a man-made temple, like a physical architectural temple on earth, where, where, you know, which Scripture says is God's footstool. He goes into the very presence of God, the throne of God in heaven, before the Almighty like no one else could. And, and He goes there as our high priest with His own blood, and therefore through Him we now have access to God. And here's the thing. This is why Jesus going into heaven matters. This is why His ascension matters, is because the high priest would go in and he had to come out. He had to come out. He couldn't stay. Um, he was only there temporarily. Jesus remains in the presence of God for us. That's why the way of access is always open. Um, Hebrews talks about the priests. They're standing, constantly doing and working. Jesus sat down. Why? His priestly work in terms of the, the offering and the shedding of blood is finished. Like he doesn't have to keep offering himself again and again and again. His one sacrifice is enough for everyone for all time. And so, but again, we can't understand that without the day of atonement and what the priest does there. Like it's, it's, and this is, we talked about, you know, God doesn't reveal everything at once in our sin. We are very slow to learn. And God is a very patient teacher. Like God over time reveals all these things to help us on one, understand our need of a savior, but to also understand what he actually did. And at this point, he is instructing us. This is what it takes to get into the presence of God. This is what it takes for God to forgive us, to, to have our sin dealt with, taken away, his wrath removed. 
and, and all of that. Like, so God is, is getting us ready for Jesus with this all-important chapter on the Day of Atonement. And again, we have to have this if we want to understand Christ. Yes, no, that's very good. And just look, Leviticus 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So first the priest atones for his own sins. Jesus did not have mm -hmm. to do that. But then look, look here on the screen. These two goats we know about, they represent, you could call them propitiation and expiation, and the, it does not get more glorious than these two things. So propitiation, the one, the one that is slaughtered, the goat that is slaughtered, his blood is taken into the most holy place, put on the top of the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant there, it is placed right in God's presence. That represents God's wrath being satisfied, his wrath being appeased, his wrath being removed, his, his wrath being taken away for all those who are, who are covered by that blood. But let's not forget the, the scapegoat, the, the, the expiation. I think this is a beautiful picture that can get often overlooked. The scapegoat, you know, the priest puts his hands on the head, transferring symbolically the sins of the people to that goat, and then a man in readiness takes it far outside the camp, and what happens? That, that goat goes as far away from the people as possible, removing the sins as far as the east is from the west, metaphorically speaking, right? So, so God, both His wrath has been taken away from us, but also our sins have been removed away from us. Our sins are no longer attached to us. They are no longer part of us. When we think about all the things we've done wrong and all the things we're embarrassed about, the Lord thinks of none of them in the sense of His justice. He, he removes them from us as far away as you could imagine. And just to read the verses, they're just too good not to read. Verse 15, I'll skip a few words, but verse 15 of Leviticus 16, then he shall kill, this is the propitiation goat, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression and all their sin. Verse 21, the other goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by, a, by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities in itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. I just want to say, people who argue that the Bible does not teach the imputation of sin into another person have not read this text. It, could it be any clearer what's happening here? God is transferring the sin from the people to something else, to someone else, to the innocent victim here, right, to, to the goat. Well, the New Testament, if Jesus is fulfilling this, imputation is taught in the Bible. Our sins are put on the head of Christ, right? He bears them onto Calvary. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us with our sin. And let's also not fail to add his righteousness is also counted as ours. It's as though God laid his, ha his hands on our head and said, the righteousness of my son is on you. It's just an amazing great exchange here between these two uh, individuals. And, and again, Hebrews 10 that Greg's been re referencing, I'll just read the verse on the screen, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, which other people could not do back then, right? Not everybody could do that. We can enter holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts 
sprinkled clean. That's Leviticus language. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's Leviticus language now applied to Jesus. All the washing, all the cleansing we need to make us clean before God that Leviticus talks about endlessly, it seems like, Jesus uh, brings that to full fulfillment. And can I make a comment on this going back to um, somewhat I was saying earlier, but in light of what you just read, like the Israelites... You know, immediately after the Day of Atonement, their sins start piling up again. Mm-hmm. This is why they're going to need another Day of Atonement next year and then after that. And it's like we, we have to be careful because we are so hardwired to, to not think rightly about this. We, we can think, man, I finally got over that. But then I start messing up and it's like, oh, great. It's, just, it's almost like we feel like because we're imperfect, because we're, we're still sinful, that, you know, we, we constantly get ourselves further from God. And it's like, I know I should pray, but I don't feel like I can pray because I've done this, this, and this. I've thought this. I cherished that thought. I nurtured that thought. I didn't do what I should here. I did what I shouldn't do there. And it's almost like we feel like, well, I've done like... I can't get close to God again because of that. And it's like, mm-hmm. we feel like we've got to go through this purification process. I got to get myself right before. And it's like, this, this is the wonder of it. We have direct access to God in Christ, no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, um, no matter how far we may feel we have fallen. We, the, we actually insult God and we insult the gospel. We insult the cross when we think, I can't go to God right now because I just messed up. I've got to do X, Y, and Z first, and then I can pray, and then I can call to the Lord. No, Jesus made the way open so that no matter what, we can come near to God. That is the wonder of the gospel here. All that ritual, all that purification has been accomplished for us in Jesus. And so that's the beauty of it. Yes, you may feel filthy, dirty, guilty in your sins, and you are, and you have a way right there to go to God. Like that's the wonder of this. Like you are welcome into the presence of God as a child of God to immediately pray, to immediately call out to him. And it doesn't mean we treat sin lightly. We're, we realize this, the only way I can do that is because the perfect, eternal, sinless, righteous son of God took my place and bore my sin. But because he did that, right now I can go to God. Like he welcomes me now. God's not, uh, you know, you really messed up. You, you need to wait a few days before you pray again. Like, because you really blew it this time. That's not how this works. Right now, I can go to God. So take heart, guys. Take heart, church. Like, that way of access that is open to us is so precious. Make use of it in your darkest moments, in your most messed up moments. That's when God's like, look, here I am. Come to me, and you will see what I can do to restore you and clean you and help you. No, amen. And I would end right now, but I'm not going to. That'd be a great moment to end. I got two minutes and we're going to finish Leviticus. Are you ready? I'm not either. Okay, so real quick, this is, this is really oversimplifying it. Michael Morales says he admits this is oversimplifying it, but if you want to think of it in slightly oversimplified terms, the first 17 chapters of Leviticus is justification. It's about blood, sacrifice, and priesthood leading you into God's presence, justification. And then the back half of, of, of Leviticus is dealing more with practical matters of holiness, right? Sanctification, you could say. Slightly oversimplified, but I still think a helpful way of looking at it. So as we come down the mountain here, we enter into the moral purity regulations, and I'll just kind of give you a quick, just real quick here. Chapters 18 to 20, to, this is all oversimplified, okay? Way oversimplified. 18 to 20 is saying, it's, it's, it's bracketing this section, both sides, bookends. 
Don't be like the nations. Don't be like Egypt and don't be like Canaan. They practiced all kinds of sexual morality and evil and wickedness, and they offer their children to the false gods. On the, on the, don't be like them. Chapter 19 in the midi, middle, be like Yahweh. Be holy as I am holy. And the Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself right here in that chapter, okay? So there, there's all kinds of wonderful texts that we're going to skip right now. And then if we look quickly, we're coming further down the pyramid, and we've got the ritual feasts, especially the holy days, chapters 23 to 25. You know what they are. I'll just put them on the screen. I'll mention them. Passover, unleavened bread, feast of first fruits, weeks, Pentecost, uh, feast of trumpets, day of atonement, tabernacles. Why does God care about their calendar, their annual calendar? Why? Because it's about sacred time. It's about reminding yourself of what God has done. God delivered us from the Passover. That's what these two are about. Uh, he, we, we traveled through the wilderness. He provided for our needs. We need atonement, on and on and on. It's, it's all reminding you of God's past faithfulness to give you faith to trust Him for tomorrow's mercies. And then you move down to the bottom of the pyramid. You've got the last two chapters that are sort of like a call to covenant faithfulness. Chapters 26 and 27, a call to covenant faithfulness. I'll just read this really fast here. Uh, chapter 26, verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, observe my commandments and do them, I will give you your rains in their seasons. The land will yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield fruit. You shall dwell in your land securely. It's Eden all over again. It's paradise on earth. It's God amidst you, blessing you. But if you don't obey if you will not listen to me and not do all these commandments so that you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, wasting disease, fever, etc., heartache. You'll be kicked out of the land. Uh, you'll be scattered among the nations. Your enemies will, will, will rule over you. And then here's how Leviticus sort of comes to an end, close to the end. But if they confess their iniquity, uh, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. I'm going to bring them back. I'm, I'm going to bring them back, and I am going to bless them. So that's how Leviticus ends, and I'll pray for us briefly. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing and sometimes confusing and perplexing book. But ultimately, we know this book is about sacrifice. It is about blood atonement. It is about a sinful people who need grace and mercy. And we know there is no question in my mind that this book was written by your Spirit through Moses to foreshadow the work of your Son, that there is nothing else in the world that this book could point more clearly toward than what Hebrews describes as our great high priest offering himself as the sacrifice to make a way through the curtain that is His flesh, to come into Your immediate presence uh, by Your grace, and that Your throne could now be called the throne of grace. And so, God, I pray that we would draw near uh, in time of need, and I pray that You would bless our service time coming up in just a moment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.